Hey everyone, and welcome back to To The Point Podcast. Everybody's doing well. Made it to a Friday, uh, heading into a weekend with lots to get into. We got the Stanley Cup final. We have the NBA season coming to an end last night. Uh, Canadian Football League, which I haven't gotten able to get into yet. We're back. I uh, watched a lot of that game last night before the NBA got going. Interesting end to the game. Some interesting storylines there. We also got the U.S. Open we're going to talk about today. And this weekend, I, I plan to podcast tomorrow morning. Uh, so be on the lookout for a release tomorrow morning. There's just I, I like to talk golf, and when it's on uh, a major, get on a Saturday. Also, we can preview game two, the Stanley Cup final. Start looking ahead to the NBA draft, different storylines today. There's always baseball to talk about. So I plan to podcast tomorrow morning. That's that's the plan. Be about early, but 8, 30, 9 o'clock tomorrow morning is my plan to do that. And we should have lots to, to chat about. So that's what I plan to do tomorrow morning. So that's just a little programming note to start the show. Before we get into the topics of the day, before we get into the Stanley Cup final game one, which I didn't get to uh, get into uh, yesterday, but we will today, and we'll we'll talk about obviously the NBA wrapping up last night. I always talk about you know I talk about gambling on the show, and I get into a little bit about what I think would be a good pick of the day. I, I do sometimes reveal bets that I make, and I, I've started gambling more and more frequently over the last couple of months. And, you know, everybody likes to talk about their winnings, right? Like, oh, I, 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 hit, I hit this one for a good payout, and you always talk about that. Well, sometimes you have to take your lumps, and, hey, this is my show, and I like being forefront with my audience. So we're going to talk about the, the, bad, the bad beats, the bad gambles that I've made over the last week because I've been on a bit, bit of a cold streak here. Let's start with the Celtics. I put money on the Celtics at the end of the first round to win the NBA title. Put $100, would have paid over $500. It's close to $600. If I would have if I would have cashed out when they got to the final, I would have made almost 300. So, a nice little check, nice little payday, up some money. But I decided not to just pay out because you're chasing it. You want to make some more money. And then the Celtics did what they did in this series. They defied me. They defied logic. And they lost last night. Losing in game six in just a moralizing fashion where we'll get to Jason Tatum and if you can call that a game last night. But that's a loss for me. A gambling bad beat. Frustrating. Second one this week. I put a dollar, just a dollar, just for fun, on Phil Mickelson to make the cut. It's more of a fun, you know, bet. It was over early yesterday. I think he's at plus 12 now over 13 or 14 holes. He's not making the cut. There's another dollar down there. There's $101 that were it was in my bank account. No longer there. So that's a struggle. Then, I I did win last weekend on Rory McIlroy. I put money on him to win the tournament, which he did. So there's a, a win for yours truly. Then I bet on the Avalanche to win. Spread. Well, they did not. 
Tampa brought that game to overtime. Should never have gone to overtime. I knew Colorado was going to win game one, and they did. But I did not expect it to go into overtime. I did not expect Tampa to play as poorly as they did and still get that close to winning. So there was a loss, $20 down the drain. So it hasn't been a great week. After the McElroy win, this weekend I got McElroy winning. Threw some money on him. I have a three-way parlay bet, which if you're not familiar with what a parlay is, it's when you throw two, three guys, and you basically, you could say, well, this guy's going to win. You're going to get a goal score. You're going to get uh, this Vasilevsky will have 30-plus saves. My parlay this week is at my three picks and my golf pool, which is Rory McIlroy, Xander Schauffele, and John Rahm will all make the cut. We'll wait to see on that one. We'll talk about that tomorrow if they do. But that is my parlay bet of the day or of the week just to get to tonight is Shoffle, Rom, and McElroy to make the cut. I believe they will. But after last night's Celtics loss where they cost me lots of money, I'm starting to question it. Is that going to hit? Is Shoffle just going to spray it all over the place today? I have to have faith. But I feel it's important to say my winnings. And my losses when it comes to gambling, because I've just gotten into the world last three, four months. It's been a good profitable thing for me. It's a good side hustle, if you will. I really never gambled before. I tried to help some friends, although that was not that fun because when you lose the bet, then your friends blame you and they would have made a worse bet. So go for go figure there. But also I've learned this. Seamus Fillmore, who you all know, if you listen to the podcast, comes on every Tuesday. I love him to death, dear friend. But if you if this is just a gambling one-on-one, if Seamus Fillmore is rooting for a team, don't bet on them because they are the ultimate cooler. Celtics, Leafs, they're just bad bets to make. Don't bet on any – just text Seamus. If you know Seamus, just text him and say, do you like this team? If he does, just avoid it. Don't – his teams don't get you victories. They don't get you money. They lo- make you lose money is what happens. I put money on the least winning game six against Tampa. What happened then? Nothing. They lost. I did put Tampa money on game seven, but nevertheless – Not as much winning as the game six loss, I'll tell you that. So I I wanted to go through the the betting angle here. And also, that's one way to make money is just to not bet on Seamus' teams. Avoid them like the plague because they will haunt you forever. They'll cost you money. They might cost you a family. If you're putting a large amount of money on these teams – you could just be gone. I'm being dramatic, but that is one simple way to not, to not lose money. Make money, bet against them. That's just how I look at this. It's not all Seamus's fault, but it's some of Seamus's fault because I had faith in his teams and they screwed me. They screwed me royally out of my pocketbook. Now, money's not everything in this world. I get that. I'm not like a live golfer. I don't need to 
It's not all about the, the change. It's not all, you know, Shane McMahon. Here comes the money. But, I mean, I don't work for free. So I like to make some. I like to make you guys some money. That's why I do the pick of the day segment. That's why we talk about gambling. And I'm trying to help you today on a Friday. You want to make a bet on a Friday night? Go into that weekend with a smile. Well, I know Seamus likes the Los Angeles Dodgers. They're a pretty good baseball team. But he's not really a fan because he jumped on them on a bandwagon when they started winning. So take that with a grain of salt. But I know he likes them. And the last two teams have been coolers. They got the Cleveland Guardians tonight. You know what we're going to do here? We're betting on the Guardians. On the road, the Guardians with Zach Plesak pitching tonight against Clayton Kershaw. It screams Dodgers win. But just because of what's happened, we will not bet on the Dodgers. We will not give him vindication. And I realize he's a sad chum today. His Celtics lost a title. I wish I felt sorry for him. I don't. That's something I wish I had in my brain. Compassion, more of it for fans, for different things. I try. Trying to work on that just as a human being. It's not a real successful so far. But we're betting Guardians tonight. It's pick of the day. It's early. We're only 10 minutes into the podcast. Still have a lot to get into. But Guardians tonight, on the road. Plesak. Maybe we'll go Plesak plus six innings. At least six innings pitched with a Guardians win by over two runs. Parlay. Just because. Kershaw gives over two and a half runs. Maybe somebody's already made that bet. Don't know. Just a thought. It's a day of the cooler. And when a guy, when the teams are just a cooler, you bet against them. And that's where we're going today. That's how we had to start this podcast because I can't blame myself for having faith in the Celtics and them just letting me down. I have to blame somebody else. And I'll blame the fan of the team for getting that into my head, that that team could win, could beat Steph Curry. And I was going to talk about hockey first, but no, we're going to go to basketball first because we're on the topic. We're on the topic. Let's get into it. NBA Finals Game 6 last night in Boston. Boston, the former city of champions. Celtics, one of the best organizations in NBA history. And I couldn't tell last night, I'll tell you that, because in a must-win game, I don't know if I've seen a team be that lethargic. See a team have such a great start. Celtics started the game on a 14-2 run. Complete domination. And then they finished the first half with 39 points. 14 in the first five and a half minutes, they finished the half with 39 
points. Last night was just a horrible game from the whole team. I'll get to Jason Tatum in a second. And we're going to talk about the Warriors and their dynasty today, but I have to get these Celtics off my mind. Jalen Brown started the game off hot, hitting, hitting jimmies, hitting jumpers, moving the ball well, making pretty smart decisions. But then he morphed back into his old self, turning the ball over, getting into the lane, and the Celtics had this problem that I've never... They can't make a layup. They can't... This team can't make layups. I wasn't good at basketball. Wish I was. Wasn't growing up. I could make a layup. This team goes to the hoop, and they're playing against the Golden State Warriors, where they're big, so to speak, and Kavon Looney is 6'8", 6'9", and they couldn't make a layup against him. Draymond Green, an undersized power forward, they couldn't get a layup on him. It was a lethargic, lethargic half, where what could go wrong did go wrong. They weren't defending. Golden State had made 48% of their threes in the first half. So Brown's playing terrible. Smart's doing whatever he does, flopping all over the court. That was a big problem last night, and that's something the NBA needs to address is the problem with flopping. It it makes the product less than. It makes the product unappealing because it makes your players look soft as cottonelle tissue. So Marcus Smart, another starter, he's flopping over the floor. Al Horford, had a, he was the only guy who had a great game last night. Had 12 points in the third quarter, making his threes, played his hard. He's 36 years old. He had nothing left in the tank. But credit to Al Horford. He's the one guy I'm going to say he had a good game last night. Other than that, they all stunk. He's playing well. Actually, Robert Williams played pretty well, too. Because he defended. At least he tried. He made an effort. He did foul out. But he was he blocked five shots. He was in the paint. He grabbed rebounds. Then we get to the Boston Celtic bench. Five points. In the last two games, they had a combined nine. Derek White lost all confidence. I don't know what the hell he was doing last night. He played too much. Ime Odoka, he was in a tough spot last night because Tatum didn't want to play, although you had to play him, which was even worse because you don't have any other option because he wouldn't shoot the ball, and all he did when he did get the ball was give it to the Warriors. But Derek White stunk. Grant Williams had a series to forget, and little Peyton Pritchard couldn't hit a three. Five combined points. Jordan Poole, Gary Payton Jr. the third, Kevon Looney. They had a, they had twenty one. They had thirty one in game uh, five. Yeah, game five. So that's over fifty points to nine. Fifty to nine. I, I'm not a math major, but fit, I know fifty is a lot more than nine. Celtics out rebounding. They couldn't make a shot. It was just a lethargic, lethargic night. Oh, Boston also. 22 turnovers last night. 22 turnovers. How is that possible? 
22? I'd like to think. I see Creighton's in the chat. I like to think me, Creighton, a couple friends get together. We wouldn't have 22 turnovers. We'd just shoot the ball. Dribble off the floor and just shoot it. Then you can't turn it over. Hit the rim. That's a shot. It's a shot attempt. 22? Golden State had 11, which is a lot for them. They had six in game five. 22 turnovers. After that five-minute mark, the Celtics basically checked out of this game because the game was over in the second quarter. They made a run in the third quarter to cut it to 10. I never thought they were going to get close. I never worried about that game getting even remotely because there was at times it was a 25-point lead. It was all Golden State. And now let's get to Tatum. Tatum's young. He's 24. He's been in the league five years. And he is a very good player. I want to start off by saying that. He had a great postseason and the Celtics, after the way they started the year, should be very proud that they got to the NBA Finals. I think if Chris Middleton's healthy in Milwaukee, they don't get there, but that's semantics. They had a great year. Positive one, something they can build on, for sure. No denying that. But this series, Jason Tatum, who was anointed basically as a superstar, put in the superstar club, Given all the extravagant trappings of a superstar, lauded as one, was everything but a superstar in this series. He was he was there. He was never a guy that took the game over. He never was aggressive. His he missed he shot 23% in the paint in this series. That's what I'm saying. They can't make a freaking layup. Tatum was afraid to go into contact. He would change his body angle to not get into contact to draw a damn foul. But you have a bad series. It's your first finals. That happens. LeBron had a bad first finals when they played the Mavericks. Kobe Bryant didn't have a great first finals with the Lakers. Larry Bird didn't have a great first finals. When it just comes to shooting the ball. But... In your last game of the year, in your last half of the season, it's extremely hard to excuse this. Jason Tatum in the second half of last night's game had two points and five turnovers. The best player on a nearly championship team cannot have two points in the entire half. I don't know how that's possible that Jason Tatum had two, only two points in the entire half. I don't want to hear about injury. I don't want to hear about his shoulder, which he grabbed 18,000 times. I don't want to hear about the referees. Were the referees great last night? No, but they were bad on both sides. This was not – the Celtics got their ass beat. Nothing to do with the officials. He didn't show up in that second half. And if I was a Celtics fan, I'd be extremely encouraged about the season. My biggest concern is, is Tatum actually a superstar? Because he played the second half last night in the defeatist mode. His mentor is Kobe Bryant. Kobe Bryant, I don't care if you'd be down 45 points, he'd come out the second half and attack. He might shoot the ball 80 times and only make 10 of them. 
but he would be aggressive. He would at least try to win that game. Tatum did not do that. Tatum didn't put an effort that you could be proud of in last night's game. It was a pathetic effort. Thank God for Al Horford in the third quarter, because this game would have been embarrassing to score. Golden State would have won by 35 to 40 points in a closeout game on the Celtics' home floor. It was already a blowout enough. They won by 13. It should have been more than that. The Celtics had a great year. And I can reiterate, I can't reiterate this enough. They should be happy with the season they had after the way it started. They have a new coach in Ime Odoka who clearly knows how to coach, who I think had his flaws last night in the game where he played Derek White too much. He played some of these guys way too often, the bench guys. And I get it, guys need a rest, but it's a must-win game. And it's tough to play Tatum with how bad he played last night. But my, my main concern still remains. You got to the finals. And you should be proud of that. You beat Kevin Durant. You beat Giannis Antetokounmpo to get here. But with Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown being your best players, can you do it again? Jason Tatum's not a superstar. He hasn't proven that he is a superstar yet. Him and Jalen Brown are closer than I believe people think they are. Their skill levels are very similar. They turn the ball over at the same rate. Jalen Brown has a better shooting percentage. To me, they're they're close. They're both stars. They're not superstars. The superstar label is thrown around too often in every sport. The NBA, of course, it is as well. Can two guys that are star, not superstar players, get you to an NBA final? I have my win you a title. I have my doubts. When Dallas won, Dirk was a superstar. The Toronto Raptors had Kawhi Leonard. At that time, he was a superstar. He was a game changer to that roster. LeBron, of course. Stephen Curry. You bet. Kevin Durant. Tatum and Brown are star. Very good players. But they're not superstars. And I haven't seen Tatum take that next step to becoming one either. Because he was so tentative He was so reserved, and he didn't attack in the biggest moments in this series. He didn't demand the ball. He didn't say, we're going through a struggle. Give me the ball. I'm going to go get us a bucket. Let's reset like the best players do. And maybe he'll find that. And he's got to be happy that he's got a good roster around him. But the Eastern Conference is not a cakewalk. Milwaukee is going to be back. The Heat are going to make a trade. I believe the Heat should do everything in their power to convince Bradley Beal, the Washington Wizards, to go to Miami. Trade off some assets. Bradley Beal would be great there with Jimmy Butler and their cast of characters. The the Nets are going to be back. Who knows the hell what happens there, but they'll be back. Maybe they won't be any better, but they'll they'll be back. Teams are getting better. And there's Philly with James Harden. And that's who Tatum reminded me of last night. Huge game, and he played like James Harden. Had nothing, 
brought nothing to the table. And for this year, we know this. Jason Tatum wears number zero. And it's fitting that he does because he has zero rings and he played like a zero last night. He had two points in the second half. Kind of would be better if he had zero. So it could just be a zero all the way around. But he gave zero effort last night. And with that, he gets zero rings. Now on the other side of the coin, start negative, then we'll go positive. Golden, the Golden State Warriors won their fourth title in eight seasons. Steph Curry won his first finals MVP. And as good as he was in game four, he may have been even better last night, in my opinion, because of the stage of the game. A closeout game on the road, and he goes six for seven from downtown. Finished the game with 34 points. He had eight assists. Steph Curry was just unbelievable last night. Golden State, as a team, were better than Boston in this series. And I didn't think they would be. I didn't think they would be because I liked the Celtics roster more going in. But with the leadership from Curry and the way he played throughout this series, which was pretty elite, they didn't have many pitfalls. Yes, they lost games, but they they were calm about it. They could go through Draymond Green's struggle. They could go through a Klay Thompson struggle, and guys would step up. Jordan Poole over the last two games has been huge for the Golden State Warriors. Gary Payton coming back after missing the conference final was massive for them. He had three steals last night. He had... Uh, Six boards. He played really good defensively. And he threw in some points as well. He was big in his moments. He was on the floor. I mentioned Poole. Draymond Green didn't have a great series. And he does a lot of talking. But he gets the last laugh today because, sure, he didn't have a great series. At times, he was unplayable for the Warriors. But he had a hell of a game last night. Nearly put up a triple-double. Had a great defensive game. Offensively, he made two three-pointers. He was all around the, the play, getting offensive rebounds, setting up great ski, great screens for Steph Curry. He was a difference maker last night. He really set the tone for them from the start. After going down 14-2, to two, he, made, he made that first three to make it 14-5, and they went from there. They started chipping away, started chipping away. And before you know it, Golden State had just a, just a stranglehold on this game. And he kind of said after game five that they wanted to finish it on Boston's floor, to have that sort of vindication, to do it in front of their fans who are tr treating Golden State pretty crappy in this series. And he wore all black to the game because he said it was a funeral, which I love too. Yes, it's obnoxious. Yes, it's cocky. But when you win the game, it doesn't matter. You, it's vindication. You did it. And Clay Thompson only had 12 points last night. But it's also a great story for Clay, who hadn't played in over two years. One of the good guys in the sport, his father, Michael Thompson, a former Laker great. And he goes back from tearing his Achilles to tearing his ACL. And now he's back. And I expect him to be a better player next season than he was this year. But to go through it all, to come back late in the year, and to, to be able to battle through this whole playoffs physically to get through it, 
to have some big games down the stretch for the Warriors, it's a big, big moment for him. But for me, it's the biggest moment for two guys in particular, and that's Steph and head coach Steve Kerr. For Steph, he's now eight time all eight times all NBA. He's an eight time, twelve time All Star. I read this before the show. He's won two um, regular season MVPs, four titles. He's a two time scoring champion, and now he's a Finals MVP, which he hadn't had on his resume. He's an all time great player. And if he isn't in the top 10, we can go through it. You got Jordan, LeBron, Wilt, Tim Duncan, Kobe Bryant. You go through these names, I find it hard to to leave Steph off of it. Because he's got four titles. He's done it all. He's revolutionized the game. And he's not just a guy we say, well, he changed the game. You know, Vince Carter changed the game in a way because he was so dynamic, the way he dunked, the way he presented himself. You'd never really seen it before. And then, but then he was just a, another guy. He was he was a guy that, that was similar to Tracy McGrady, and his impact has been felt on Toronto forever. But Steph Curry has literally changed the game. Look at his teammate, Jordan Poole. Jordan Poole is basically the splash little bro where he is the Steph Curry identical, where he has all the confidence in the world to shoot logo threes, and he shouldn't shoot as many as Steph Curry, but he does it anyway. He has that confidence. He, ha- he has that swagger about him, and I think that comes down from, from having a teammate like Steph, who he's seen do it in games, do it in practice thousands of times. So having four titles, he's now equal to LeBron, He's one behind Kobe. He's one behind Tim Duncan. And these Warriors aren't necessarily going anywhere. They win this year, and they've had better teams. Obviously, in 2019, they had Durant. He tore his Achilles. They had Klay Thompson that year. He tore his ACL, and they lose to the Raptors. They would have won a title that year. And again, it's semantics. But Steph's 34. He's still playing at an elite level. Klay Thompson's 32. He's still playing well. So is Draymond. But you look, I mentioned Jordan Poole. They got to keep him on the roster. He's a great player. Andrew Wiggins, to me, is second in the uh, finals MVP voting. What a story for him. He's the seventh Canadian to ever win an NBA title. Truly impressive. Just what, what a step for him. To go from Minnesota to just everybody wanted him out of there, to changing his position. What I loved about... You know, he gets checked out at the end of the game so Iguodala can come on the floor. And I believe they put Iguodala on the floor because he's going to retire. He wins another title, and they wanted to get him out there because he's a veteran leader of the team. But you saw the embrace between Wiggins and Kerr, and to me that was really impactful because they hugged. And I think Wiggins, he needed a punch in the ass. He needed a tough coach. And Steve Kerr I don't think is labeled as a, as a tough coach. I think he has been. I think he's tough on guys. I think you have to earn the minutes on the Golden State Warriors. There's a reason they win every year and every second year. Steve Kerr deserves a ton of credit. And Wiggins, I think, was acknowledging that, saying, I bought into what you wanted me to do. I changed the way I played. I'm not the alpha. I'm not an egomaniac here. I'm just a team guy, and I'll show up when I need to. 
And it was a really cool embrace to see the two of them just be like, we did it. And for Kerr to say, hey, I told you what I was going to say worked. What I was telling you was for your benefit, also for mine, for the team. And Wiggins to say, I did what, what you told me to do. And guess what? Now we're champions again. But Wiggins now jumps into you know Canadian lore by winning an NBA title, by being a big part of it, by locking up Jason Tatum in, in really good fashion for this whole series. He did a great job guarding him. But I, I love seeing that, to see, to see that. And then Steve Kerr, as I mentioned. Steve Kerr won five titles in his playing career. Won many with, with the Bulls, made a shot to win a title, but he was a role player on that team. He was a good shooter, a good player in his day, for sure, but a role player at that, and he was never an alpha male on his team. But he won five titles, won a couple with the Spurs at the tail end of his career, had a really good playing career. But then he did some – he worked for um, – was he the ESP? It might have been Turner. Worked for TSN, uh, TNT for a while, calling games. He was good at that. Then he did some stuff with the NBA, and he's offered the job in Golden State. A first-time coach, and he's – they built an empire there. Eight seasons as a coach, he's won four titles. An incredible run. And he's going to, he wouldn't have gone into the Hall of Fame as a player, but he will now go into the Hall of Fame as a coach. But to have nine titles, nine titles, he's on the Belichick level. Phil Jackson, who he played under in, in uh, briefly, obviously with, with the Bulls, he's got 11 as a coach. Won six in Chicago, won five in Los Angeles with Kobe and Shaq. Steve Kerr has nine. Obviously, it's different coaching, but if he can get five as a player, and if he can get to 11 like Phil Jackson, he's got, obviously, that's two more great seasons to win a title, but I wouldn't rule it out. He's already in the ranks as one of the great coaches in the history of the NBA. Four championships. Four championships. Greg Popovich has five. If he could... Even, you know, one of his coaching mentors and pop, which, which would be crazy in and of itself. And he's doing this in an eight-year span. This Golden State team is not going anywhere. Curry's still there. They have their guys. Poole, Moody, if they can figure out Wiseman, who was a second overall pick who didn't play this whole year and they still won a title. They didn't trade him at the deadline for pieces, which is another incredible thing. Moody. Is there looks like a good player. Jonathan Kaminga, I like the most out of all of them because I think he's so dynamic with his athleticism. If he can figure out a shot, he's going to be a factor and be a difference maker in this league. This team could still be in title contention for the next five years because of what they've done drafting and developing players. Yes, you'll lose your Andre Iguodala's, and yes, you'll, you'll lose guys along the way. That's what happened with Golden State. They lost Barbosa. They lost uh, Bogut. They, they, you lose guys to different teams. You lose them to, uh, to retirement. But you keep the core, and you keep building great players around them. What a season. 
I did not expect this when the season started to see the Golden State Warriors get here. Because just two years ago, they were in last place in the NBA. They had bottomed out. They didn't have any players playing. Steph Curry, Clay, you looked at him and said, is he ever going to be able to come back and be an effective player? He did. Steph Curry was banged up. He got through this whole season relatively healthy. And for him to cap off the season with a finals MVP, with another title, and he said this was the toughest one yet. This one definitely, I think, means the most to him because there was no Durant. He won two with Durant. Durant got the credit for those rings. Well, Durant's got two titles. Curry's got four. LeBron James has four. And I'll tell you this. Golden State's going to have a lot better odds to win the title next year when the odds come out on FanDuel. They might be out now. I'm sure they are to win a title than the Los Angeles Lakers. I'm sure LeBron would love to play with Steph Curry. I think there's probably something to the rumor that he would like to be on Golden State, to stay in California, but just to go to uh, San Francisco, go down the road, play, play, with, the, play with the Splash Brothers. Not going to happen, but I'm sure he'd like to because he knows he's not winning anything with the Lakers next year and he's only getting older year by year. But to win four titles in eight years, to have the success these guys have had, that these three guys had stayed together, they didn't go through any breakup, they didn't have to quit a team, they weren't James Harden, they didn't have to go Kevin Durant mode. These three guys stuck together, they're still great friends, and they're champions again. Truly incredible achievement. And again, they just have that winning gene. They came up big when they had to, and Boston just never did in the series. They had a 2-1 series lead, and they couldn't find a way to win game four. And after that game, it was check, please. It was over. They, they were getting out of the hotel. They didn't want to pay their bill. And before you know it, you know the law had caught up to them, and guess what? They're paying their fine, or they're getting behind bars. So both these teams will get some rest, but the NBA draft, you can believe it, is next Thursday. So for Bob Myers, for the Golden State Warriors, and obviously tougher for the Celtics not winning and then you have to get back to work, these teams got to make picks. This is how you stay a, a good team in the league. You draft a guy that could be a player on your team next year in all likelihood that you hope can, can have an impact. But, but a good season, a great playoffs for the NBA all in all. I thought it was really entertaining basketball. I do think the NBA has to do something about flopping. It's too much. It's excessive. It's so clear, and yet the refs can't seem to figure out that it is flopping. So that's problematic. But that, other than that, I don't think the officiating were terrible in these playoffs. Golden State battled through. They did not get here because of officiating. Boston did not lose last night because of officiating bias. It was just... A game where the better team won. But kudos to Golden State. Four titles in eight years. Steph Curry is now right on the precipice of one of the 10 best players to ever play in the league, and he's not done yet. So we'll see where this goes moving forward. Now to hockey, which you can believe it, the NBA is finished before the NHL, which never happens. It's always the other way around, which it should be. But again, we got... The COVID stoppages and everything in between there. So that's why this is happening. But it's still strange to see NBA wrapping up a season and the NHL could still be playing for another two weeks if this series goes as long as I think it will. 
But let's check game one. Game one, Colorado beats Tampa 4-3 in overtime. As I mentioned earlier in the podcast, I did not expect this game to be close. I expected Colorado to win this game handily. I Colorado wins game ones. They're 13 or they're 14 and two in the playoffs so far, which is incredible. But also Tampa doesn't play well in game ones. Tampa doesn't particularly care about game one. They'll lose it and come back and win the series. They did it against Toronto. They did it against the New York Rangers. And I thought Colorado would come out hot after that long layoff. And they just seemed to, I thought they'd have the advantage going into game one. And they did, in a sense. They were the much better team. They ultimately won the game. I just did not expect Tampa to take that game into overtime where it really wasn't that close. Start with this. I thought Miko Rantanen and Valerie Nikushkin were the two best forwards for the Colorado Avalanche on Wednesday night. McKinnon played extremely well, but Rantanen was a force from the drop of the puck. He was possessed on pucks. He was physical, and he just had he made great passes. I thought it was one of the best games he's played. And Rantanen is one of is a great player in this league. He's right up there with some of the best wingers in the NHL. He just isn't talked about as much because he's not on the Canadian team. He plays in Colorado, a little bit parts unknown, and it, it's not it's not a sexy team. It doesn't you don't feel you don't talk about Colorado until they're deep into the playoffs and they're on the verge of winning. But I thought he had a great game last night, uh, two nights ago. Valerie Nikushkin. Scores a goal in the game. He was a force. He played to think about Valerie Nikushkin, who was drafted in the first round, first round by the Dallas Stars. He was then there for a number of years. They didn't want to re-sign him, so he goes back to Mother Russia. They still had his rights. He plays a few years over there in the K, finds some success, comes back over to Dallas. Plays a number of years, had some decent success, but they let him walk. He's now in Colorado. He's a complete force. He's a power forward to the upteenth degree, and he meshes perfectly with McKinnon and with Landeskog on that top line because that line is physical, they're fast, and they're difficult to play against. But I thought those two guys were great. Another thing I like what Colorado did in game one was the way they, they approached the neutral zone. They had their D step up. They didn't allow Tampa to get a whole lot of momentum in the neutral zone. They stopped creativity from happening. And they also, on the opposite side, Tampa's defense and their forwards didn't do enough to stop Colorado from gaining momentum. Every time they got the puck in a neutral zone, could have been a turnover, could have just been a breakout through speed. It was too easy for Colorado to enter the opposing, enter Tampa zone. It was just a one-way pass. It was like uh, the express ticket. Or when you're in the States and you're going through a, you're paying the polls there and you got an easy pass. That's basically what it was. You just, you're going through the line pass. We're not paying, uh, you know, please uh, avoid jail, collect $200. Like just, just go. That's something Tampa needs to clean up because it was far too easy. Colorado just got the puck. They went in the zone. Didn't matter who it was. Could have been McCarr. Could have, it was Nikushkin. It was the whole team had free reign. Coaching decision I love from the start of the game when I saw the lineup come out from Jared Bednar. He doesn't have Rantanen playing center, which this is incredibly important. 
and it's smart because in this in the conference final, Miko Rantanen was playing center. He's a right winger. He is not a center iceman. And asking a winger to play center ice when he doesn't do it, sure, you'll do it if your team asks you. But when you're thinking logically, this is not a smart decision because it's not your natural position. You're going to do more to focus on the position and focus less on your game and being attentive to detail and just playing at an elite level. But you go with McKinnon line one, you bump uh, Comfer up, Darren Helm played the third line, and Nico Sturm was inserted to the lineup to be the fourth line center. This was the way to do it. Rantanen played the wing. He had a great game. He had some good chemistry with Comfer. I like what Bednar did that. That was smart. I, I thought it was going to be a bad decision to go with Rantanen at center for the entire series. I'm glad he already took it off the table. I thought that was a great move, and that was early in the game, and he never put Rantanen at center, so I applaud him for that. Bednar had a better coaching in, in game one than Cooper did. Now, Colorado dominated this game. The, many guys on their team didn't play bad. They had... Uh, Eric Johnson had a bad play. He gets beat to the puck by big. My one thing there is uh, Tampa's first goal. Big Nick Paul beat Eric Johnson to a puck. And I joke that Nick Paul teaches power skating in the off season. But if big Nick Paul is beating you to a puck, that's a problem. So Eric Johnson, you might've been tired. I get you're not the fleetest of foot anymore, but you, you did go number one overall in a draft. Nick Paul did not, and I like Nick Paul, but that he might want to burn that tape that a guy that skates as poorly as Nick Paul beat you to a loose puck, beat you to that spot. I would not want that on my resume. So, you know, God have mercy on his soul. But that, that was a funny moment for me for Eric Johnson, who I do like. He is a good defenseman. I think he plays the neutral zone extremely well. But just be careful because – that was Nick Paul that beat you in the next game. What if it's Anthony Sorelli? What if it's Hagel? You don't get a fucking chance. So this game is dominated. Colorado, they got all the momentum. And but the second period, two goals in 48 seconds by the Tampa Bay Lightning. And this is my worry about Colorado. Yes, they still win the game, but I mentioned game one is pretty irrelevant to me. I don't worry about it. It's not something that I say, well, now, you know, Tampa's got to be concerned because guess what? They couldn't win game one, even though they, I don't view that. I don't view it that way yet. But two goals in 48 seconds does concern me. I'll be very clear about that. So in the second, McDonough gets a huge shot block and the puck goes down the other way. And one of the filthiest moves by Nikita Kucherov, where he just, Makes a guy miss. Give and go to Palat. Makar can't get to Palat on, on the back door. He pokes it home. 3-2. Three, three, Deadly play. Palat, beautiful goal. And then Sergachev from the point. Yes, there's some guys in front, but it's not that difficult a shot. Gets through Kemper. 3-3. Three, three. My thing here is two quick goals, sure. But also Darcy Kemper... I can't blame him for the Palak goal. Makar should have been there. He wasn't. But the Sergachev goal, I can. The Nick Paul goal. I mean, Nick, Nick Paul deked him out pretty easy. And we're talking about Nick Paul here. 
Darcy Kemper, you're not Jack Campbell. I mean, I get Nick Paul can score goals easy on Jack Campbell, but come on. Darcy Kemper played okay in game one. And Vasilevsky didn't have a great game, which I didn't think he would. He never does in game one. He plays the game. He plays great in the important games. Game one's not an important game. It's a, game one is one is is so irrelevant to me. If you're a great team, game one is a warm up. Game one is, you know what game one is. Game one, if you're a band, is your warm up. It's the morning before. It's your you're rehearsing. That's that's game one. It's a dress rehearsal. No dress rehearsal. This is my life. That that's what game one is. It's it's the it's the pre-show. You don't care about you care about game one if you've never won. If you have no confidence, they've and they're playing a better team than they have this playoffs. I get that, but looking back, I'll never admit. Oh well, Tampa lost this because they lost game one. They came out flat. No, they play like shit in game two. I'll have more of a concern because they're playing Colorado. I will admit that. But the fact that this game went to overtime when it shouldn't even been close would concern me because they were Maroon nearly scored in, in overtime. He came out of the box after he got the delay of game penalty at the end of uh, end of regulation. It goes back down the ice. Burakovsky gets the, an empty net. He puts it home. Great. But Colorado might've played their best game of the series. McCarr played phenomenal. He played nearly 30 minutes, and overtime was only a minute and 33 seconds. So it wasn't a long time, you know, just added time in the game. He was all over the ice. He was dynamic. He was skating everywhere. I, I love the way he played. McKinnon, like I said, I thought he played one of his best games of the playoffs uh, on game one and the entirety of the playoffs. But as I look here, well, you played a great game. Vasilevsky didn't have his best game. A couple goals early in the first period he should have had. Hedman didn't play great. Stamkos was pretty invisible after having a great conference final, but he wasn't great in the first couple games of that series. He got better as it wore on. So the game went as I expected it to. It just was closer than I expected it to be. So... Basing it off my lo- my logic, my knowledge, in the way I see this going, I would be more concerned if I'm Colorado because of how the game went. Vasilevsky played better as the game went on, no doubt about it. But also, you went to overtime in a game that you dominated. Why? You went to overtime in a game where Tampa's power play was horrible. 0 for 3, they had two shots. It had no creativity. It had no good scoring opportunities. And that's something Colorado did well as well, is penalty kill. They didn't allow Tampa to have time to set up. I applaud them for that. But Brayton Point's going through the growing pains. He struggled in the first period and a half. I thought he didn't look didn't look great in the first period. I, thought he, I read an article, what are they going to do with Brayden Point in Tampa? Should that be a concern? No. He got better as the game went on. If you watch the whole game, you went to bed, I get 9 o'clock, I get it's a late start. He played well. He started to find it. And they can make an adjustment in this series, which I think they will eventually, John Cooper will, is they can put Nick Paul at center 
and put Sorelli with Point on a line. Nick Paul can be on the shutdown line with Kalorn and with Hagel. Sorelli can play with Point, and maybe they put Sorelli at center and Point can play the wing. Coming off an injury, when you have a flexibility like Tampa does, you can do that because Nick Paul can play center. He's a great guy on the faceoff dot. That's, that's something I think we will see in this series. That's something I think we need to see in this series because it will make a big difference. Point doesn't play well. Stamkos is invisible. Vasilevsky's mediocre. Hedman plays pretty crappy. Well, that sounds about a 5-1 win for Colorado, right? Because McKinnon was great. Nikushkin was great. Rantanen played great. McCarr was all over the ice. Wait, uh, what? 4-3 in overtime? Yeah, 4-3 in overtime. That was the game. Game two. So talk about again tomorrow. So I don't want to preview too much. So I want you guys to tune in. To give you a reason to tune in before tomorrow night's game. Listen to the podcast. But again, it's home ice tomorrow. It's so important for Colorado to win. It's so important for Colorado to win because they have all the pressure. Split going back to Tampa? Yikes. Even if Tampa's down 0-2, I won't panic, but it's more of a concern because you're playing a better team. But even then, I have faith in this team. Do I think they could win four in a row against Colorado? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. But Colorado did nothing in game one to have me convinced that I should be more confident, that I should be worried about my Tampa pick in six, because they threw the kitchen sink at the Tampa Bay Lightning. And the Tampa Bay Lightning... Colorado had a, a Malibu mansion. Beautiful home. Range Rover in the, in the driveway. You know, whatever else. Maserati sitting there. And Tampa had an old Ford Mustang that had no motor in it. And yet they're living side by side. So what the hell's happening here? What it tells me is both teams are rich, but the guy with all the fancy expensive stuff in the one yard is overcompensating. Well, the guy with the old Ford Mustang that needs a new engine, well, if he gets all the parts and pieces, which Tampa has, that Ford Mustang is going to blow past that Maserati. That Ford Mustang, I don't even like Ford, so I don't even know why I'm using that example, but Mustang's a nice enough car. Let's go Camaro, because I fuck Ford. But let's, you got an old Camaro, 69 Camaro in the driveway. You got all the pieces that can make it work. Stamkos, Point, all these guys, they come together. That Camaro's going to go blow past that Maserati. And before you know it, the guy with all the expensive stuff in the driveway is going to have a bunch of dirt blowing up, going to have a bunch of just going to be basically global warming in, in his front yard because that Camaro is just going to be doing donuts just spinning right in front of his house. And before you know it, it's not going to be worth as much as he thinks it is. Maybe that's a poor analogy. I hope you get it. Hope it. hope you can make the sense of it with me because Tampa's a rich team. So is Colorado. Tampa looked poor in game one. Looked like they were 
you know, struggling to get alive, can barely afford a six pack. But when they got all things going, they can buy a 40. They can buy whatever the hell they want. And before you know it, they're drunk drinking expensive liquor. Game two tomorrow. We'll talk about it more tomorrow when it comes to this, when it comes to this series. Great game one, though. Really uh, fast hockey. Uh, really entertaining hockey. So I thoroughly enjoyed game one. I expect game two to be no different tomorrow night. Official today, John Tortorella is now the head coach of the floor of the Philadelphia Flyers. They give him a four-year deal worth about three and a half million dollars. Which my biggest surprise with this is the number, which is four years. I thought he'd get three. I thought they'd want him to get to a two-year deal. Because, but I'm sure Torts would say, no, you're giving me a three. But to get a four-year deal, it's interesting because I don't know where the Philadelphia management think they are. Where does Chuck Fletcher think Philly is? Because when I look at this team, they are not close to being a contender whatsoever. They're not close to being a, they're not that close to being a playoff team. Yes, they're getting JVR off the books, which helps. And yes, Martin Jones will be off the books. And yes, hopefully, but you look at it and say, I love Ryan Ellis. I love, I've loved Ryan Ellis since he played at the World Juniors. But unfortunately, the guy can't stay healthy. It's terrible. I wish he could. He's a great player, but he can't stay healthy. Carter Hart might have been the next prodigy in net, but he's never looked like one in the NHL, ever. I've never seen him play consistently good hockey since he got into the league, period. So to think, well, Carter Hart's – stop right there. To think Carter Hart, if any time your team is – well, our goalie has to be – cut it. Carter Hart has not shown it. I'd have very little faith in that. You need to build a team around him that can play. Defensively, this team was horrible last year, 28th in goals against. I like Sanheim on the back end. Provorov has his warts. If he could move him, I would. If he can get a good good haul back. Because, yes, he's a good player. But also, he's been on your roster for a while, and your team hasn't been any good. So maybe you need to move somebody. You need to change things up. Drew's gone. Voracek's Couturier is still on the roster, but he, he has his injury problems. This team has more holes than I think management realizes. And I'm curious to see what, what the viewpoint is. Because Torts, when he joined Columbus, it was to build a culture. It was to make it a tough team to play against. And yes, I do think Philly has the perception that they're a soft team. Gerard Gallant was brought into New York to change that perception. And I think Torts will want to do that. Cam Atkinson, vouch for him. He, had a, he coached him in Columbus. But also, I wouldn't expect Philly to just turn it around next year. Torts is important for building a culture. Torts is important for making this team tough, not a, just, okay, you can go all over us. We're weak-minded. The bigger job here is Chuck Fletcher, the general manager, to build a team and to draft well and to make good decisions in this, this offseason when you're handing out contracts. Signing Johnny Goodrow, which could happen, because Goodrow's from New Jersey, but Philly's always been linked, is not the solution. That doesn't make you uh, just a champion right away. 
Would he help? Sure. But that's not – he needs to make smart moves to for this team to get better. Number one for me, work with Carter Hart. You're not, I'm not saying give up on the kid, but this prodigy, that this that's gone. That, that perception is dead, that this guy is the next coming of Martin Brodeur. I haven't seen it. He's never showed it. I don't want to hear it anymore. But could you work with him so at least he could be a competent starter in this league? That's something that I think Philly needs to work on in this offseason. Work with the goaltender. Work with your young guys. You made that trade for... For uh, Giroux, Owen Tippett is now on the roster. Can he make your team next year out of camp? But this team is going to be, I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. That's what I expect from the Philadelphia Flyers because I don't like their roster. I just don't. But I think Torts is a good hire when you're hard, when you're building a team around culture, when you're building a team to not be as weak. They need somebody like him. But I do think this Philly team needs to pump the brakes when it comes to expectations. Because Chuck Fletcher, look at your roster. It isn't that strong. It isn't that good. And that's what needs to be acknowledged here is, okay, on paper, you you had some really good big-name players. But guys just haven't played that well for your organization. I like Joel Faraby. Travis Konechny is a guy I trade. Travis Konechny's got all the piss and vinegar in the world. And yes, he's annoying. He's like Gallagher, but he takes stupid penalties. He's not good enough of an irritant, and he's not scoring as many goals as he used to. If you can get rid of him, get off him. He's one of your core pieces. I think he's more of a detriment than he is a solution. And I like that style of player. But this offseason's imperative for Chuck Fletcher, but also moving forward to look at this team and really give Torts a chance. He gets four years. But to look and say, you know what? We're not that damn good. And sometimes that's hard to do when you're the GM and you built the crap team that you put on the ice. But that's the most important thing Chuck Fletcher can do is just say, you know what? I'm still employed, so I can make changes. I'm not getting fired. They could they should have they could have fired me already. They haven't. He has the opportunity to make some Gradual changes right now to this roster to get off contracts he doesn't like and to see what happens. That's how I'd approach it. Philly is not that close to being competitive. But they can do things to make their team better next season. And I think adding towards his coach is just one of those things. Now, U.S. Open, we're currently in day two of the uh, U.S. Open down in Brookline, Mass., where... After day one, Canadian Adam Hadwin was the uh, outright leader, shooting uh, four under 67, uh, four round 66, sorry, for the best round of the day. And, you know, there's a lot of different headlines. The number one for me after day one was just the leaderboard and how, how wacky it was. We saw a lot of names that you're not used to seeing at the t- uh, majors being at the top of the leaderboard. A few, uh, you know, Tamman and... Uh, you had an amateur at three under at one point. He finishes at three over. Rory McIlroy is at the top, but you know, seeing Adam Hadwin be up that high, uh, Hayden Buckley, the American, uh, again, not a household name in the golf world, and obviously low scoring. But right now, as we sit here, we got 
Callum Taren, who is an, an Englishman, he's minus five leading the tournament. He's through five holes. He's two under for the round today. Followed by Hayden Buckley, who's minus three. Joel Dahman, Nick Hardy, Matthew Neesmith, and Rory McIlroy, and Scotty Scheffler, who shot three under today. So Scotty Scheffler's right in the mix, the world number one, after he uh, holed out for Eagle on the on the 15th par five today. He are on the on the 14th hole of the par five. And this course is playing tough. It's playing extremely tough. Like I said, low scores, but Callum Taren, an Englishman, being this high at this point is, is strange. Joel Dahman being there. But I, I bet on Roy McElroy. He looks possessed. He had a, a good round yesterday shooting a 67. But for these guys this afternoon, I mean, Scotty Scheffler had a great round. Sam Burns is two under. He's, he shot minus three today, which is the best score on the course today. Those two guys who played this morning in the same group. Adam Hadwin shot two over today, but he is two under. He's still in the mix. He's still in the fight, so to speak, in this tournament. For a guy like Rory McIlroy, if he could shoot one under, two under today, that would be an extremely good round, even shooting even par. Because of the way the course is playing, there's a lot of wind, and it, it played tougher in the day yesterday. The guys in the afternoon really had a tough go. I expect to see the same things today because you see some better scores in the morning. But I, I want to see what, what what intrigued me was seeing how the live guys did compared to you know the regular, just the guys in the PGA Tour. Because you got Morikawa, you got Rom in the mix. Kepka shot three under today. So he finishes even pars. He's likely going to make the cut. He'll still be in the mix in all likelihood. Uh, Thomas Peters shot two under. But if we look at our live guys, because uh, starting today, we saw. Um, so today, Bryson DeChambeau shot one over, so he finished. He's plus two. Uh, Dustin Johnson was having had a really good first day. He shot two under, and then it didn't go as well for him today. In my, if I remember correctly, he was having he was having a tough go, and I'm trying to find him on the leaderboard because I was tracking him before the. He shot three over today. He's now plus one. Will likely make the cut, but he had a tough go. Uh, other uh, Kevin Nah, he's likely not going to make the cut. He's another live tour guy. Sergio Garcia is plus four, not going to make the cut. Uh, Jason Kokrak shot five over today. He's not going to make the cut. And again, this doesn't mean that these players aren't great, that they're not good guys. Like Kevin Nah shot even today. He's plus five. He's not making the cut. And there's obviously guys in the PGA Tour. Louis Ustazen is six is plus six for the tournament. Another live tour guy, not going to make the cut. And I have no problem with the live tour. I've mentioned that before, but I do find it intriguing to track because a lot of these guys aren't going to make the cut. DJ will Bryson likely will because of how big the scores are. But to see Louis Ostezen who's always in majors to see guys like DeChambeau and them not be in the mix and to be full of PGA Tour players, I think that's exactly what the tour wants. I think that that's exactly what what you're looking for is for these live tour guys to to not even be in the mix, to miss the cut, and then the PGA Tour can say, "Hey, we got the best players in the world over here. The guys who defected, they aren't that good anyway, because we're killing them here. We're destroying them." And it's it's a good argument. Seeing these guys struggle, it's a tough golf course. 
But to track the live versus PGA side of it is also very intriguing. But I'm curious to see this afternoon how Rory plays. How got you know? I have Xander Shoffley in my pool. I have John Rahm, the defending champion. How these guys do, and if they can make it interesting come this weekend. If we get to moving day tomorrow, which is Saturday, if we have a lot of big names at the top of the leaderboard, because guys are on the first or second hole today, so still have a long way to go. Still have a lot of tough holes to get through. Just, just to make the cut and be competitive. But what I hope to see after today, after a Friday, is we see a lot of the, the my Afro, the aforementioned names in the same group tomorrow. Make it super interesting. And you know, it, what's great too is if there's a low score, say it's the leaders minus three at the end of today, and Callum Taron is minus five right now, but that can change in a second with with a bad shot. You miss a fairway. You put in that thick rough, which is if you're watching. If you do get to watch the U.S. Open this weekend on TV, you can see what they do with, at U.S. Opens. They just they don't cut the rough. It's impossible to get through it, and you have to be extremely strong to get out of it because it it's nearly impossible to have success when you put it in the rough. If you go driver and you put it in the rough, you are in trouble on this golf course. But I'm, I'm curious to see if there's big names on the board and if if a guy if the leader's at three under and you have a guy like Brooks Kepka who's even par heading into tomorrow, he's still in good shape to compete for the title. He's that, That's what I like about the U.S. Open is guys who are three strokes away, guys who are far, can still have an impact because those leaders could have a tough round. They could start missing fairways. And before you know it, they're dropping strokes. And these guys who are even par are right back in the mix. So I'm, I'm just watching the scoreboard today, watching guys and see how they do and seeing – and I think this is this tournament is about Rory McIlroy. He hasn't won a major in eight years. But after winning the Canadian Open last week, after being so boisterous against the Live Tour, I think he's found a new passion. I think he wants this desperately. And seeing him you know, in this mode, I want to see if he can close. I want to see if he can get back onto the major, get another major under his belt and you know, really, really show himself again to the golf world that he is one of the best in the world. And that, you know, he, he's sending a message to the live guys. He's sending a message that, hey, I'm still on the PGA Tour. I'm the best player in the world. And I don't care what how much money you guys are making over there because you're looking at the best. But Justin Thomas shot is one over for the tournament. He didn't have a great day. Didn't have a great morning today. So he's, he's still playing. Uh, he's still in the mix right now. But just curious to see the cut line, see what guys make it in. And different storylines like that, but so far a good tournament. You got, you know, it'll be that's my my plan this weekend. So the weather doesn't look great, so I plan on watching a lot of golf. Obviously, I'm going to watch Game Two of the Stanley Cup Final podcast tomorrow morning. But I plan on binge binging. Sorry, Ozark. I haven't finished Ozark yet. I think I've watched two episodes of the second part of the second half of the last season. And I'm going to, I think I might just restart it because I kind of forget what happens. I've got, I want to just start it fresh, going to get through the whole thing. And we'll, I might recap Ozark on Monday. If it's such an interesting ending, I want to talk about it. So I, I do, that's something, if you haven't seen the show, let me know. But I do want to talk about Ozark because I find that interesting. And I'm also going to binge watch this weekend, season three of Barry, which 
So yeah, with the rain, that's my just what I do. Binge watch Barry, binge watch Ozark this weekend, and sprinkle in some sports. Throw in golf on the TV while I'm doing both. That sounds like a pretty crappy weekend and not real fun, but that, that's my plan right now is binge watch those two shows and then get golf on as well. So that's that's my plans, but uh, I uh, I do want to get to Ozark because I've heard from many people that's an interesting ending. I don't know if you'll like it, which is cryptic because I really don't know what that means. I don't know. I don't think you'll like it. Again, I watch a lot of shows. I'm very tough on shows. I'm critical. So, but sometimes, you know, people hated the Sopranos ending. I think that was a great ending. It's one of the great endings in the history of television. So we'll see. That, that's my plans this weekend is to binge watch those two shows. And uh, I'll let you get, I'll let you know what, what I think about them come Monday. Now, before we wrap today, let's get to some CFL. I didn't get, I didn't talk about this last week, but the Canadian Football League is back, and I'm, I love the CFL. There's not many games I miss. I, I got into the sport because of my grandfather, and I, you know, I, I rarely miss a game. I watched the game between the Owls and uh, Argos last night, and the Argos home opener, and I think there's a lot of intriguing parts of this CFL this season, starting with with um, with the Argonauts with. Argonauts made a lot of changes after last season. They brought in Brandon Banks from Hamilton, who had always been a Hamilton Tiger Cat, had been an enemy of the of, of the Argos, but he left Hamilton in the offseason that they had some differences. He joins the Argos. They also made a huge splash in in uh, in signing Andrew Harris in free agency after Winnipeg said after winning two Grey Cups that he's an older back, he's 35, and they didn't they thought they could move on without him and still be competitive. So Andrew Harris joins the Argos with a chip on his back. I think Brandon Banks, the same thing, where Hamilton just didn't view him the same way as he used to be when it comes to speed and his production on the field. But both had good starts to their seasons last night. Andrew Harris had 18 carries for 85 yards. And what I like most about what Harris did last night, and in particular the Argos, is their quarterback, McLeod Bethel-Thompson, was not asked to do the, you know, to be everything. They ran a ton of plays early in the ballgame. They started off the game with 12 run plays to three pass plays. I love seeing that from I love seeing that from, from the Argonauts, especially with, with Andrew Harris. He had to leave the game with hamstring tightness, but he had a good game. I like seeing the short inter, intermediate passing game. But that was a positive sign for me. The Alouettes lose the game on a last-second missed field goal, which – it was the biggest gimme I've ever seen, and David Cote just missed it. It was a chip shot. I can't believe he did. Inexcusable missed field goal. I hate field goal kickers. I'd hate them even more if I was an Alouette or the coaching staff. Kahari Jones looked like he was going to faint after he saw that field goal goal left. But the Alouettes, again, they're in this weird pattern where Vernon Adams Jr. was hurt last night. He always seems to get hurt. I do think he's a good quarterback, but he's constantly injured. William Stanback, the, the leading rusher in the in the CFL last year, is on the six-game injured list, so he's out. I, they got a good receiver in Eugene Lewis, and they got a decent team, but they just lose close games. They lost a close game to Calgary in week one. They lose a close game last night. They don't have that gene to win tight games, 
And for, for the Alouettes, this is a big season. They brought in Anthony Calvillo to be the quarterback's coach. And Trevor Harris came off the bench and played well. They should they should have won the game last night, but they didn't. And now they're 0-2 already to start the season. And it's not panic time in, in Montreal, but I think there's worry because the Argonauts are a good team. I think the, the Ottawa Red Blacks have improved. They brought in Jeremiah Mazzoli. They lost week one, but they played the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. They played them again tonight in a rematch. So I'm curious to see what they bring to the table, if they can play better. If Masoli could have had a better second half, I think they win that game because Kalaros and, and Winnipeg didn't get a lot going on offense. So I'm curious to see what the Red Blacks have in store for them tonight. Um, but, you know, they're better. I think the, the Argonauts are better. The East is not as weak as it used to be, for sure. Uh, Hamilton is still a good team. Dane, they got blown out in week one, for sure. But Dane Evans is a good quarterback. I think Hamilton will rebound. They, they've been a, a consistently good team for a long time now. But to me, the biggest, the two scariest teams are Winnipeg. And I still view Calgary because I think Bo Levi Mitchell had a tough year last year. He's gone through some injury problems. He's had some interception issues where he had the most interception in his career last year. And Jake Meyer is a good quarterback behind him. But I, I like what... Calgary is done. They've reshaped this team. They got a very good offensive line in front of Bo Levi. And I expect this team to be competitive. I expect this team to, to duke it out in the West. But, you know, it's interesting because then Calgary's very good. I think Winnipeg and then BC is kind of the, the team you don't know about because they got Nathan Rourke at quarterback, who's a young Canadian QB. He's still trying to prove himself as, as, a, as an everyday starter after the retirement of Mike Riley. And they dominate week one. But again, it's always, you know, every week is an opportunity to prove something. And that's really what the CFL is, is for, you know, Saskatchewan's been great for, been consistent the last number of years, but Cody Vajardo and that team couldn't get over the hill. BC's, can they rise back and be a competitive team? Can Montreal start to win some of these games? I think the league is extremely close. Winnipeg's a good team. I don't think they're elite. They lost a lot of players. They've won two great cups in a row. Through that, you lose players just like every other sport. Tampa's won two Stanley Cups in a row. You, you lose pieces that helped you win that prize. So I look around and I just say, well, any team could win. I like Saskatchewan's roster a lot, but Cody Fajardo has his limitations at quarterback. So is he good enough to win a great cup? I have my doubts. Hey, uh, Calgary. I like them, but Bo Levi's constantly injured, and the receiving core could be better. So I, I doubt that. Hamilton's played a lot of football. Their team's been together forever. But Ted Laurent, uh, Simone Lawrence, uh, Jaguar Davis, they have an older team. Can that defense hold up, which is really the backbone of their team? And with no Mazzoli behind Dane Evans, is he good enough to be a starting quarterback in the CFL? So... This, this season should be, I think it should be extremely fun season. It should be interesting because there's no definitive great team. There's no definitive front runner because the league is very, very close. So that's a good sign for the league to have some competitive games and to have a productive season and hopefully a profitable one following the two-year nightmare COVID situation for one of Canada's best sports and one of best best leagues in all of Canada. With that being said, we got some baseball tonight. We'll talk about that tomorrow because we got 
some interesting series. We got the Jays tonight. They're playing the Yankees. Ross Stripling will pitch tonight against Jameson Talon or against Jordan Montgomery. Sorry, we'll talk about that tomorrow on the podcast. We'll talk about obviously a preview game two, the Stanley Cup final. I think the uh, we got Astros White Sox was an interesting series. Uh, we'll talk about the pick of the day, which is Guardians over the Dodgers, and uh, Plesac going over five and let's go five and two thirds innings, and just because. You fade Seamus's teams. That's the way you make money. You fade who Seamus is rooting for. You find some success. So that's the pick of the day. Guardians over Dodgers. 11 o'clock start. If you want to stay up for it, watch some Guardians play the Dodgers tonight at Chavez Ravine. But hope you guys enjoyed the show today. Have a great weekend. But do, no. stay awake for tomorrow because it's a Saturday, but we'll be back. And we'll chat then. On to the point.